Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are continuing the Tulip series by going into total depravity. So we're going to start talking about the doctrine aspects of all this. Um, the historical sections could have been like way too much. Um, it, it's only meant to orient you on some things. Um, other things like superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism will will be a lot to take in at the point that I gave it to you. So like I said, as we go through the whole series, we will have to flesh those ideas out, and then you may need to go re-listen to the historical section um, if you want to try to get more out of those. And like I said in the introduction for this series, things may change in terms of um, the structure. I'm trying to organize it to where it makes the most sense for you guys. And so the way that we're starting is with total depravity, and we're going to talk about original sin, original guilt, and then original guilt in Arminian theology, and then original guilt in Calvinist theology. And then we'll talk about the corruption of man, and then we'll talk about the corruption of man in Arminianism, and then Calvinism. And then we'll talk about the human will. Now, the human will will be touched on in the corruption of man section. However, I am going to treat that as a whole new section after we do corruption of man. And then within the discussions on the human will, we're going to have to talk about um, how God's sovereignty works with the human will in general in a broad sense. But then we're also going to have to bring in foreknowledge, which originally I had foreknowledge as going into the category of God's sovereignty. But it makes sense to talk about foreknowledge in relation to the human will and how man can be free in relation to God's knowledge of choices and things of that nature. And so things may change in this series on the structure, but I'm going to do my best to make the titles of these episodes clear so you know exactly what's being discussed and you can come back whenever you want to to um you know, to listen. And like I said uh, in previous episodes, these show notes are available for patrons. Uh, so right now, as of recording, we're at 58 pages for patrons. By the end of the series, it's, it's going to be basically a mini book, which may or may not be um, self-published like the Holidays in the Feast book. I haven't decided yet, but if you are a patron, having access to the show notes uh, is one of your perks. So let's go ahead and go into total depravity. And we're going to begin with original sin and original guilt. And so let's hop to it. Um, original sin is the term or doctrine that upholds that man is inherently sinful from birth because of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So original sin teaches that all people are corrupted by Adam's sin and are born with a corrupt nature inclined to sin and death without hope for salvation apart from God's grace. This doctrine is a doctrine that is held across all theological traditions. But in this, there are subtle differences between the specifics of how original sin is firstly transmitted, and then second, whether or not original sin includes the concept of original guilt. And so if we're going to say original sin is the idea of corruption, original guilt is the idea of inheriting the guilt of Adam's first sin. For example, whenever it comes to these distinctions, Eastern Orthodoxy, we find this conception of what is called ancestral sin. And ancestral sin is, in essence, another way of saying original sin, but 
the East does not include original guilt. And from reading, you know, both sides of the sources, I think that the dichotomy between the two is a little exaggerated. Really, the Orthodox tradition still holds that man is corrupt, has a sinful inclination, a spiritual disease, but they just don't hold to original guilt, uh, which is a position also in the Western tradition. So there's that. So we're going to summarize these positions below, but first we're going to point out that God created man upright and sin is a corruption of the good creation of God. It was in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and bring about what is referred to as the fall. Uh, and that's Genesis 3. And this is where, um, at the fall, we have this divergence in how original guilt and original sin are transmitted. There's this idea of federal headship and there's the idea of natural headship. But we're going to sidebar that for right now. So since the fall of Adam and Eve, all humans have lived in a patterned inclination of corruption and sin. Sin should probably be defined briefly for clarity. Sin is wrongdoing, rebellion, unrighteousness, transgression against God's design and commands. Sin, therefore, can be summarized as failing to conform to God's standard or explicitly opposing God's standard. The Bible tells us that every person sins, and you can see this in Psalm 53, 1-3, Jeremiah 17, 9, Romans 3, 10-23, and every human being, with the exception of the incarnate Son of God, experiences corruption spiritually and morally. So each human being has the impending future reality of death and eternal punishment apart from God's saving grace. Ephesians 2 acts as a good summarization of what is occurring here. Ephesians 2 states that before we were saved by Christ, quote, we were children of wrath just like the others, end quote. In this same chapter, we find that human beings are being described as being dead in their trespasses and sins and following the sinful course of the world and the devil. Genesis 8.21 simply states, quote, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, end quote. And Psalm 58, 13 continues, quote, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies, end quote. As it has been pointed out by many individuals, that if you have children, you see this very early on, that you do not need to teach your children how to sin, but it is something that comes naturally. And so all of Christendom has agreed that sin is universal and it affects the whole of creation. Every person is impacted by sin. Even Jesus, who was without sin personally, was still crucified by sinful people. And so the impact of sin is universal. And aside from Christ, we read that, quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Sin is the human condition since the fall of Adam and Eve. The condition's cure is found in the personal work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his resurrection. Sin is the disease, and Christ is the cure. This all points to the reality that without God's grace, we are without hope. We are helpless to save ourselves. And again, every branch in Christendom agrees on this point. It is where the details are coming in that there are differences. And so original sin, whenever we're talking about comparing theological systems, is easy. Now, it is true that there are those in modern evangelical circles who end up being Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, but for the most part, 
if we are talking about systems that are rooted in scripture, this is a given. It is seen from Adam to Revelation, and it is seen also practically in the day-to-day world. So that makes that section easy. And now we can go into a little bit more nuance with the idea of original guilt or inherited guilt. So as briefly mentioned, we can properly distinguish some differences in original sin by the idea of inherited guilt and inherited consequence. The former, that is inherited guilt, says that people inherit not only the inclination to sin and mortality from Adam, but also Adam's guilt. Inherited consequence disagrees on the inclusion of Adam's guilt in the conception of original sin. And so here are some different views of these dynamics with some of their respective adherents, and this is based off of Adam Hardwood's contribution in Calvinism, A Critique, and here are the categories he creates. There are five, um, and he, he has it based off of someone else's work. I don't remember who is, it is right now, but one is corruption only with no guilt, and he argues that this would be Christians before Augustine um, and the Orthodox Church, right? And he would argue Uruk Zwingli, who was the Swiss reformer um, who led the Reformed tradition um, within that period. Two, corruption and guilt via federal headship. So I mentioned federal headship a little bit prior, and that is that there's not a physical or spiritual transmission, but it's more of a legal transmission. Um, and this would be John Murray, Charles Hodge, and a number of others. Federal headship is a big one, especially in Reformed theology. Um, three, Corruption and guilt via realism. This means physical transmission. People are guilty because they were present in Adam physically in the garden. They were in his loins, his seed. And this would be Jonathan Edwards and Augustine. Augustine was big on this um, natural headship is what is sometimes called. And then corruption and guilt in that people are guilty inherently from the corruption, not from the sin of Adam and Eve. So what does that mean? Well, that means that they are guilty because they have corruption. You can't have sin without guilt. Therefore, they're inherently guilty because they are inherently sinful. So it's not necessarily a natural transmission of Adam's sin and guilt to the person, but it's a transmission of Adam's corruption to the person, which results in a natural guilt. In this position, um, they put Anselm, Calvin, and Blotcher. And the last is conditional imputation of guilt. Uh, Basically, people ratify the guilt or realize the guilt of Adam when they knowingly commit the first act of sin. And the only one they put for this one is Millard Erickson. But this one is basically saying that everyone is born with the corruption of sin, sin in them, but they're not guilty until they commit their own conscious knowing sin. So a child who commits sin out of impulse is not necessarily guilty until they they have that level of consciousness. And that kind of falls into that discussion on what is called the age of accountability. Um, so there's that. Now, as we stated, all traditions agree upon the corruption via the fall of Adam in the garden. And so it makes the discussion on original sin without the consideration of original guilt very easy to navigate. Original guilt is worth discussing a little bit more because it's a little bit more fringe in terms of discussions that you see. And so let's go ahead and talk about that for a little bit. So much time can be spent on the issue of original guilt. 
uh, because the topic does become complex, especially in light of historical theology, because original guilt was virtually unknown before Augustine. And church historian Gerald Bray states, quote, it is virtually an axiom of historical theology that the doctrine of original guilt as we recognize it today cannot be traced back to Augustine. And that is in Gerald Bray's, um, let's see, original sin and patristic thought. Um, so further, Bray points out that in the East, Christians, uncon- unconcerned with the Pelagian controversies per se, went on their way assuming that mortality and corruption of our nature was the fact of the matter without an indication of imputed guilt. And Cyril of Alexandria would be kind of a um, representative of that. In the Western tradition, however, original sin with guilt would become predominant. And so we're going to define the word impute or imputation as its key here. So imputation is the transfer of benefit or harm from one individual to another. And that that particular definition is from um, the pocket theological terms. Um, IVP put out this little book called Pocket Theological Terms. It's excellent if you want a quick thing. Or... Imputation can be defined as setting to someone's account or reckoning something to another person. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary puts forward this example, quote, God reckoned righteousness to believing Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. This means that God credited to Abraham that which he did not have in himself. And that's seen also in Romans 4, 3 through 5. They continue, this does not mean that God accepted Abraham's faith instead of righteousness as an accomplishment meriting justification. Rather, it means that God accepted Abraham because he trusted in God rather than trusting in something that he could do. And so imputation can be seen as uh, it's usually paralleled with a bank account, right? So if you have a bank account and you're sitting at zero and say that I'm Adam and I sin, and I am your representative as a human being. I'm the first man. I am the the one that God has decided to deal with first and foremost, and I have sinned. And so my sin as your representative is imputed to your bank account. And so it's a low number, but we're just going to use it. Um, so say that that is represented by a negative 100. You are in the negatives now, and you are born with this negative account. You are in debt, essentially. And so he imputed his debt to us as our federal head. And of course, I'm assuming a federal headship view, um, which you'll have to go look up a little bit more on your own. But again, that is the idea that it's not a physical or spiritual transfer, but it is a judicial legal transfer. So as your representative, you have taken on his his uh, guilt and his sin. Now, looking at Christ, we have what is called the great exchange. And that is the idea that on the cross, Christ takes our sin from our account and takes it upon himself. So we impute our sin onto Christ. He takes our sin. He becomes sin for us. And whenever we are found in Christ... He imputes or credits to our account righteousness. And so we went from negative 100 to giving that negative 100 to Jesus on the cross. And he gives us his positive 100 where we are no longer in debt, but instead we have his righteousness on our behalf.
And so hopefully that illustration can help you understand that concept of imputation a little bit, and we can go back to our notes. So when we're talking about the imputation of, of Adam's guilt, we are talking about, again, crediting to his descendants the guilt of his sin. And just the same, if we're talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, we are talking about the crediting to those in Christ the righteousness of Christ. And like I said, how that imputation works between like a federal headship or a natural headship, it, it differs. But um, going back to the Holman Bible Dictionary, it says, quote, God reckoned righteousness to believing Abraham, right? So let's take a look at Romans to kind of compare that. Let me pull it up. Um, so if we look at Romans 4, 3 through 5, I mean, move over here. It says, for what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so using Abraham as an example, because he had faith in God, he was credited with righteousness on his account. And that's basically the, the entire argument of Romans 4, whenever you start looking into it. So that's just a discussion on imputation and the general idea of imputation. So the question is about original guilt. So is original guilt true or is it just original corruption? Well, usually the text that comes up is Romans 5, 12 through 19. So let's read, um, let's start with 12 and we'll end at 14. Quote, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. End quote. And so the first few claims of this text lack debate, right? Um, because we find, again, restated the original long-held reality since the Old Testament that it was through Adam that sin and death entered into the world. Death is presented as the consequence of sin, right? And this sin has come into the entire world and spread to all men. Sin is universal and death is universal because death is the consequence of sin. So the agreement seems clear here. And so the debate is actually over the phrase, quote, so death spread to all men because all sinned, end quote. And so the question is, well, why is there a debate here? Well, the debate is here because of how Augustine translated the Greek phrase that is rendered as because here. So Augustine's reading would be something like death spread to all men in whom all sinned. And the in whom refers back to Adam. So the idea was, these men sinned in Adam because they are a part of Adam. Another way to say it is all men sinned in Adam. So this would mean that all of Adam's subsequent children sinned with Adam and are born with original guilt. And this is the, the idea of natural headship where um, they are in Adam, in his loins, in his seed, and thus they have sinned. And so the issue is really a translational issue, and um, many have acknowledged that Augustine wasn't particularly good at Greek. And Mu, uh, Douglas Mu, simply states that the rendering or interpretation of Augustine is unlikely 
as the two words in Greek are likely functioning as a conjunction, meaning something like from which follows with the result of or something along those lines or because, right, as the ESV puts it. And this same Greek phrase can also be found in texts like 2 Corinthians 5.4 and Philippians 3.2. And so Douglas Moo, and I'm, I'm quoting the um, Letters to the Roman New International Commentary on the New Testament, excellent series, um, if you ever want some robust commentaries. But he states, um, Paul's concern in this verse is not with original sin, but original death. But we cannot stop here, end quote. So even if we're looking at this first text, which is really the hyper-focus on original guilt, it's not where we stop. There, there's more context that flushes out what Paul is saying. And so this isn't really the text on original guilt and whether or not original guilt is valid. And so this text is a little bit out of the question on the subject. But if we go to verses 15 through 19, we read as follows, But the free gift is not like the trespass, that is the trespass of Adam, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounding for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so we see that we have this condemnation that comes from Adam to all men, and condemnation is an idea of guilt. So the question that really rises is, how does this one trespass of Adam lead to the condemnation for all men? Or, um, to put it in a more of a grammatical form, is Adam's sin the cause of our condemnation or the means of our condemnation? And if that kind of messes with your head a little bit, that's okay. We're just going to press on and we're going to explain how original guilt is understood from this passage. So... Let's compare what Calvinism and classical Arminianism says. So Calvinism first. Calvinism on original guilt follows much of the Western tradition, right? Calvinists and Reformed theology generally holds that all men are born with both sin, corruption, and guilt. Quote, for there cannot be sin without guilt any more than fire without smoke, heat, or light. And that is actually um, Kurt Daniel, the history and theology of Calvinism. Douglas Moo who we read um, earlier on Romans 5, where he disagreed with Augustine's understanding of the translation. He says on Romans 5, 15 through 19, which we just read, quote, all people therefore stand condemned in Adam guilty by reason of the sin that all committed in him. This interpretation is defended by a great number of exegetes and theologians, and it maintains the close connection between Adam's sin and the condemnation of all that is required by verses 15 through 19, a connection suggested also by 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. And a type of sin committed before individual consciousness also explains how Paul considers all people, quote, by nature, children of wrath, end quote, Ephesians 2, 3, and end quote, Douglas Moo. So Douglas Moo, 
would say that original guilt is evident from Romans 5, 15 through 19, because the passage speaks about condemnation, which includes the idea of guilt, and because this is all found in basically the sin of Adam, then all must be born with both original corruption and original guilt. Michael Patton from Credo House at length on Romans has a good comparison that really puts this into perspective. He says, quote, Whatever one does with Christ's righteousness, that is in this passage, one must do with Adam's sin. So let's take a look at this comparison. Through Adam's sin, we have judgment. Through Christ's righteousness, we have the free gift. Through Adam, we have condemnation. Through Christ, we have justification. Through Adam, death reigned. Through Christ, life reigned. Through Adam, one transgression equals the condemnation of all. Through sin, one act of righteousness equals the justification of all. Through Adam, Adam's disobedience equals many were made sinners. Through Christ, Christ's obedience, many were made righteousness. And he explains, the comparison is unmistakable. Again, whatever we do to inherit the free gift is the same thing we did to inherit judgment. This is the force of just as in verse 12. Whatever we do to receive justification is the same thing we did to receive condemnation. The effects of the one act of righteousness are brought about by the same means as the condemnation of all men. The way in which believers are made righteousness is similar to the way that all men were made sinners. In order to answer the question as to how it is that all sinned and all were condemned in Adam, we must answer the question as to how Christ's righteousness is applied to us to the end that we are justified by that righteousness. If we are to hold to the view held by Pelagius that Adam's sin had no effect upon us whatsoever and that only his example had given us trouble, that means that Christ's righteousness has no effect upon us either. But instead, he simply came to set the example. But this is not what the text teaches. It states that many were made sinners and that the many were made righteous. The effect of these two men's acts goes far beyond a mere example. Paul is attempting to explain our relationship to Christ's righteousness by comparing it to the imputation of Adam's sin to us. This relationship, in my opinion, is best seen in the federal headship view of imputation. As Doug Moo puts it, quote, Throughout this whole passage, what Adam did and what Christ did are steadily held over and against each other. Now salvation in Christ does not mean that we merit salvation by living good lives. Rather, what Christ has done is significant. Just so, death in Adam does not mean that we are punished for our own evil deeds. It is what Adam has done that is significant, end quote. So to summarize this all, whenever we look at this text and we're looking at what Christ has done, where we have righteousness that is not our own, we are righteous in the sight of God as if we had done all these good works, and you see how Paul is comparing that with Adam, then you'll see that we are condemned apart from our own works, because Adam first sinned. This doesn't mean that we don't sin. We are inclined to sin. We are corrupted. We, we all sin. We all follow Adam because we are corrupted. But if we compare the way that Paul is speaking about Adam and Christ, there is this idea that we have Adam's sin and guilt imputed to our account in the same way or in contrast to the way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. Again, this doesn't mean that in the grand scheme we don't commit sin and we're not corrupt. That's clearly, whenever you read Romans 1 through 4 leading up to this point, we, we find that all are guilty 
not only by virtue of Adam that we find on later, but by virtue of our own sins. But we are born inherently with this corruption of guilt because Adam was, again, assuming a federal view, our representative in the Garden of Eden. And so that's that's the gist of the argument, that if you look at this text and you compare what's going on with Christ in relation to us who are in Christ, obviously, and you compare what's going on with those in Adam, which is all men bef before they come to Christ, then you can see original guilt is assumed, uh, especially in relation to condemnation that is assumed on men. So again, uh, going back to the predominant view of Calvinism, the Canons of Dort, again, the documents expounding Calvinism. In Article 1, underneath the first head of doctrine, summarizes as follows. All men have sinned in Adam, lie underneath the curse, and are deserving of eternal death. The Westminster Confession of Faith um, states they, that is Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin, that is the sin of Adam, was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. And that's 6.3. And so basically, all men who came from Adam and Eve, i.e. everyone with the exception of Jesus Christ, are born with the sin and guilt of Adam. Furthermore, um, you can find this in the particular Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 6, section 3, which is close to the Westminster Confession of Faith on this subject, says, quote, The guilt of sin was imputed and corrupt nature conveyed to all the posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, end quote. So in Calvinism and Reformed theology, Adam's guilt and sin, that is our judicial guilt, is taken up by Christ on our behalf on the cross and is exchanged for Christ's perfect righteousness by faith. Quote, as Romans 4, 5 tells us, when we put our faith in Christ, we are counted as righteous. That is, the perfect righteousness earned by Jesus is imputed to us. In turn, our sins are imputed to Jesus, who made satisfaction for them by bearing the wrath of God against his people on the cross. God's law tells us that we can never be good enough to be righteous in his sight. The gospel tells us that Christ is perfectly righteous and that by faith alone, his righteousness is credited to us. And that is Ligonier's um, devotion on the Great Exchange. So let's talk about classical Arminianism, and then we'll close out this episode. So whenever we talk about classical Arminianism, Matthew Pinson states, quote, Arminius openly affirmed and defended the reform statements on original sin and total depravity in the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism. And that is from Matthew Pinson's 40 questions about Arminianism. And the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism are the original two forms of unity of the Reformed Church. Like, so what to be Reformed was to hold to those two confessions, right? Jacob Arminius, in his Apology Against the 31 Articles, will go on to state, The whole of this sin is not particular to our first parents, but is common to the entire race and to all their posterity, who, at the time when this sin was committed, were in their loins, and who have since descended from them, by natural mode of propagation. He continues, For in Adam all have sinned. Wherefore, whatever punishment was brought down upon our first parents has likewise pervaded and yet pursues all their posterity, so that all men are by nature children of wrath, obnoxious to condemnation and to temporal as well as to eternal death. They are also devoid of that original righteousness and holiness. With these evils, they would have remained oppressed forever until they were liberated by Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever. 
and that's in his Disputations 152-153. So what does Arminius say? He says that all men have original corruption and guilt because of Adam, though he seems to take a, a natural hedge of view as he says that um, when the sin was committed, his posterity was in his loins. Matthew Pinson continues, quote, When asked the question, is the guilt of original sin taken away from all and everyone by the benefits of Christ, Arminius said that the deliverance from this guilt is a benefit of union with Christ, and thus believers only are delivered from it, end quote. Furthermore, Arminius said that God imputed this guilt of the first sin to all of Adam's posterity, no less than to Adam himself and Eve because they had sinned in Adam. So as with Calvinists uh, mentioned above, Jacob Arminius would state that, quote, justification is purely the imputation of righteousness through mercy from the throne of grace in Christ, the propitiation made to a sinner, but who is a believer, end quote. So he ties it very closely with the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Um, Arminian Leroy Fourlines, in his book, Classical Arminianism, spends a couple of pages focused on this point. And looking at Romans 5, 12 through 19, Fourlines simply states, quote, Romans 5, 12 through 19 definitely settles the fact that the sin of Adam is imputed or placed on the account of the whole race. Fourlines also takes the position of natural headship, which seems similar to Arminius, um, though with clarity against other extreme positions. And so he doesn't take the federal headship view. Uh, but again, we're not going to focus on that in too, too much depth. You can go look up what's the difference between federal and natural headship on your own. Um, four lines will go on to look at the parallel between the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Christ's death and righteousness, like the, the others that we have quoted so far. And he says, quote, Another view that is frequently referred to as the Arminian view does not teach that the race is charged with the guilt of Adam's sin. While it is true that some Arminians have advocated for this view, it is by no means universally accepted and should not be called the Arminian view. This is especially true since it is not the view held by Arminius himself. It is somewhat puzzling why people with good scholarly credentials would say that Arminius denied the imputation of Adam's sin to the human race. Now, while Arminius would reject this idea. Apparently, some classical Arminians would say that the atonement of Christ set aside Adam's guilt of original sin for everyone, but not the corruption of original sin. Um, all inherit a corrupt nature, which makes actual sins and their guilt inevitable, meaning that guilt will occur because of that corruption. Usually, this position comes from a concern around infant mortality, um, and so that's that. Ultimately, um, it is here where we can say that on original guilt, classical Arminianism and Calvinism generally find agreement except on the subject of how the sin of Adam is transmitted, the federal versus natural headship. But even then, that's painting with a broad brush as we are selecting particular individuals to represent our views here. So, overall, in conclusion, man from his birth, is born with original sin with the inclusion of original guilt. Man takes on the, the sin of Adam and Adam's guilt and is born a child of wrath. And that is agreed upon by both classical Armenians and Calvinists. 
Next week, we'll talk about the corruption of man and compare them in Arminianism and Calvinism. Um, if you have enjoyed Christ is the Cure, leave us a review on iTunes and prayerfully consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure, where you can have all the show notes, get early episodes and other benefits like exclusive patron courses and so on and so forth. So that's it for this week. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. <laughs>